Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Yeah, man. Summer here in L.A. It's getting hot. Hot, hot, hot. I like hot weather, though. I'm from California. I'd rather be too hot than too cold, but that's a conversation we, we can have for later. That would be a good debate, by the way. Would you rather be too hot or too cold? I would rather be too hot, but I understand why a lot of people would rather be too cold. I get that. Not me. So on the show today is uh, Ben Shapiro, who's... Uh, has a book out, The Right Side of History. Ben is uh, kind of a, I guess you would call a controversial figure out there on the right. He's uh, been called the voice of the conservative millennial movement. And one of my reasons for having been on, and um, actually did his show too, is to just have more conversations with people who I think I would have fundamental disagreements with, and I think a lot of my listeners would have fundamental disagreements with. And not to have someone like that on the show to gotcha, 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 fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, or have a real, you know, one of those kind of conversations, because I think there's enough of that out there. But I wanted to have uh, Ben on the show specifically to have a conversation and find out where he's coming from on some of these issues, especially the issues of of our day, because I think these issues aren't going away. They're issues that are out there. And get to know him a little bit more and who he is, because I, I think he is one of those players right now who's going to have a long run because there's a lot of young people who are um, kind of fans of his and that sort of thing. So um, so we have a good conversation about a lot of stuff from civil rights to abortion, equal rights. I mean, it, we talk, we cover a lot of stuff, so I hope you enjoy it. Okay, I don't have a lot. I don't have a big way in today. Let me just talk about Trump real quick. Trump makes me so mad, you guys. He just, he makes me so mad in ways that are just so fucked up. And then the things that he does just goes away so fast because there's so many distractions. But I wanted to point out the two things that he did that are quick outrageous so I can just move on. The first thing is Trump actually encouraged the country to boycott AT&T because he hates CNN. Guys, I have not been on the big impeach Trump train. I just think a lot of it is a waste of time or this. But what president— tells the American people to boycott a company. I mean, and this doesn't get any coverage in the news. It gets very little. I mean, he tweets this thing. It's so wrong on so many different levels. And having to do with his treatment from the press. These are the things to me that that are the reasons to get him out of office almost more than any of the other things. Believe me, there's a lot of things. There's almost every reason. There's not one reason why Trump shouldn't get out of office, right? These are the things that make me mad the most. I think because it's tied to journalism and the free press and some of these things. But the fact that this motherfucker has the audacity to tell us to boycott, like we're going to be on his side for this. It just blows my mind. It explodes my mind, you know. I just get so fucking frustrated with this asshole when he says that thing. And then the other thing I wanted to say, and then he comes out and talks about Space, you know, and this thing called Space Force, which I still don't know what the fuck that is. I think it's this military thing. But one of the reasons that frustrates me is because I fucking love space, right? You guys know I was big into NASA when I was a kid. The This year is the anniversary of the moon landing. You know, my heart was beating outside my chest as a kid. I love space. I love space exploration. And I hate when he talks about space, first of all, because don't fuck with space with me. <laughs> this sounds so ridiculous. Don't fuck up space. Please don't start liking space either. But of course he fucks it up already by wanting to militarize that that space. Excuse the pun, you know. But I just want Trump to stop talking about space. Get Space Force out of your mouth. Get NASA out of your mouth. Just forget about it. Just let it go. 
This, these are one of those things I hold dear, you guys. There's only a few things. But and I know a lot of people disagree with me in space exploration. I really don't care because to me, it's one of those things that it's just different, you know. And I would love it if we went to Mars and did all those things. I know to take time. I know it's expensive. I know there's a lot of stuff to do today. But to me, you know, this is one of the reasons why I loved Star Trek even as a kid, you know. Not because I was a nerdy Trekkie or that sort of thing. But it was the whole space thing, guys. I mean, it really is awesome. It really is. All right. That's enough of that. So the thing that happened in Washington that I was proud of this week was my old pal John Stewart. And I don't know if you saw this, and I'll, I'll play a clip from this. This is the complete opposite of Trump, okay? And I know John's not a politician. He's not been elected. But when John is passionate about something, I mean, John has a power that I have seen in very few people. And he is electrifying when he's passionate about something. And the thing he's been passionate about from the beginning is the government treatment of the 9-11 responders in terms of providing the um, assistance for healthcare and all these things, you know, um, families, everything. You know, John has been a proponent of this for a while. He's had the people in his show. He's he had a very emotional thing in his show once where a guy was very sick and that sort of thing. And John gave such an electrifying speech to Congress. And it, it's the best of, uh, you know, Mr. Smith comes to Washington <laughs> type of thing. You know, it is really is almost Frank Capra-esque in terms of the thing that gives you hope for the way we should care about the people that are in this country, you know. And the thing that, to me, does make our country great, that the fact that someone like John Stewart can sit there and scold <laughs> these people in the right way. And I only hope that something does happen. I hope it doesn't fall on deaf ears. But it's a, it's a very emotional speech. And I just wanted to mention it, because if you hadn't heard it, I'll play a little bit of it, but please go to it, because... It's so emotional, guys, and it's it's just the kind of stuff that we need to hear. And I brought it up because I'm just proud of my old boss. You know, I was proud to work for that guy, and I miss him a lot. So here's a clip of John Stewart. They responded in five seconds. They did their jobs with courage, grace, tenacity, humility. 18 years later, do yours. So there it is. So um, you could go online and listen to the whole thing. And um, it really is very powerful stuff. All right, guys, that's all I got. Um, if you if you don't like my next guest, you don't have to listen. But I think you'll like this conversation. And I know I'll probably get some heat online. How can Larry talk to Ben Shapiro on this podcast? But it's okay. I understand. Whatever. But I think uh, if you give it a fair shot, guys, listen to it. I think we had a good conversation. So um, we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. I'm pleased to have in the studio uh, someone who's known as the voice of the conservative millennial movement, whatever that means. Uh, <laughs> All nine of us, yes. I know, also the host <laughs> of The Daily Wire, and he has a new book out that I'm very interested in called The Right Side of History, and it is Ben Shapiro. Hey, Ben, how hey, you Thanks doing? for having me, dude. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on Black in there. I, I told Ben I was on Ben's Sunday show. This is kind of a prisoner exchange That's right. <laughs> type yeah. of thing. We had to leverage between, something out of this. Yes, yeah, exactly. Be, between the right and the left. And as I mentioned before, I'm interested in having conversations, you know, having more conversations on the show from people with different opinions. Ben and I disagree probably on a lot of policy stuff. But actually, we, we both hope to have good conversations about philosophy and about 
these issues in that type of thing. Yeah, I really forward. appreciate it. Yeah. So let's start. Well, let's start with you, man, because you, you're an interesting person in this whole <laughs> movement right now. I find you interesting partly because of of your age and what you represent. You know, there's kind of a youth movement, it yeah. feels like. But what is your story? Where are you from? Well, I'm from Burbank, California. So okay. I'm, I, I've lived here my entire life. My mom okay. was in Hollywood, actually. She she did business. She works in Hollywood? Oh, yeah. She, oh. She, did, she did business affairs on uh, a bunch of shows in the 80s. She did business affairs on Hell's Kitchen. Uh, mm-hmm. So she, she, you know, she'd been in Hollywood for a long time. My parents uh-huh. came out here originally. They were, they're from Chicago. Uh, and then they went to Boston. And they came out here because mm-hmm. my dad wanted to do film scoring. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, so he's a musician. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so he was a professional pianist. Uh, you know, uh, you know Michelli's. Uh, Absolutely. Here in my dad yeah. played piano there for twenty years. We used to go there years ago, like for birthdays and that type of so stuff. So he went there yeah. on a Monday or Tuesday night. That's the my dad. Singing leaders are probably exactly, song, exactly. That so that, that's where wow. my dad was playing for years. So Michelli's. Yeah, wow, that's a so, name from the past. Is when, it still there? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I you know I was violinist, so I used to come in there and play yeah. violin with my dad while he'd play the piano, and it was kind uh-huh. of a kick. So were you like a precocious child? Did you play like violin like at two, like uh, five. that type of thing? Five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I was. I was really good. I mean, I got to the point where I was— Because that takes some hand-eye coordination <laughs> to do violin. Yeah. You know. It's, I mean, a lot of practice. Yeah. So when I was 16, so I graduated high school at 16. Mm-hmm. I skipped a couple of grades. I skipped third and I skipped ninth. Right. And when I graduated, I thought I was going to double major in genetic science and music because mm-hmm. I was, you know, a world-class violinist. I'd studied with one of the top 10 teachers wow. in the country. I, I, was, I was pretty good. Uh-huh. And there's still tape of me on on YouTube playing Schindler's List when I was 11 at like the Israel Bonds banquet oh or something. Oh my god! Uh, and so that so you were like this prodigy coming. Uh, out. So and music was the thing that you felt might was going to be a road. Is that what you thought? He, well, it's because my dad was a musician that I think that yeah. we thought it wasn't going to be a road. Right. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you saw. Well, I don't know if I want to work at Michelli's. Right, so exactly. Not, nothing against Michelli's, but yeah, right. exactly. St- mm-hmm. Starving musician is is more common than exorbitantly wealthy musician. Everybody sees exorbitantly wealthy musician, then they don't see all the people working yeah. in Coffee Bean who have a dream, but no, it's like end up managing most, a Coffee Bean. It's like that way most of showbiz, actually. Exactly. Yeah. So I'd been around showbiz long enough to realize that I at least had to have an alternative path. So when I went to college, mm-hmm. I thought that I was going to you know, do, do science because okay. I was very into that in high school. Were you uh, a science nerd growing up, that type of thing? The truth or? is I was more of a history nerd, but I think in the mm-hmm. late stages of, of high school, I got into biology and physics and, okay. and thought that would be kind of a path. Then I took an engineering course, at, a, an engineering uh, math for engineers course mm-hmm. at UCLA and quickly realized this was probably not the correct path. Yeah. So um, I ended up going to school at UCLA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't apply anywhere else. It was the only school I applied to. Uh, and basically I saw an editorial in the school newspaper that was comparing then the prime minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon, to Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got pissed and I walked into the Daily Bruin. Struck a chord with him. Yeah, I walked into the mm-hmm. Daily Bruin offices and I asked if I could write a counter. That turned into me writing a point-counterpoint column for them for a while uh-huh. and then just a normal kind of column. And when I was 17, I said to my dad, you know, my stuff is okay. You think it's good enough to be in a real paper? Uh-huh. And he said, yeah, probably. Why don't, I, why don't I check that out? So he came up with the name of something called Creator Syndicate, which was a syndicator. They syndicated everybody from Molly Ivins on the left to mm-hmm. David Limbaugh on the right. And I just sent in my stuff cold. And they called me back three weeks later and offered me a syndicated column. So I went from not really being politically involved other than just kind of watching and Mm -hmm. reading a lot to writing a syndicated column on politics when I was 17 years old. So it kind of came to you in some ways in uh, this calling. You you had no idea you were going to – that you wanted to talk about things or speak about things. You were more interested in sciences and that type of thing. Yeah, I think think that's right, although Mm -hmm. my parents would – probably argue. My dad figured mm-hmm. that I was going to be, I, I was a talkative kid. He, he was uh-huh. figuring I was moving really? in that direction. Really? I wouldn't have known that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, the, 
Mm-hmm. You know, my favorite movie growing up was 1776, you know, the musical. Oh, yeah, my uh, son loved that movie, actually. Yeah, it's terrific. And yeah. I, I for, think he loved the music in it or something because he's very musical, too. Yeah, yeah. it's it's really yeah. it's it's underrated because Hamilton's so popular. 1776 yeah. gets underrated, but in one— I don't know if Hamilton had anything to do. It's been in the—1776 was done in the 70s, I think, right? Right, so it was in yeah. one, one Best Tony. It kind of disappeared just for whatever reason. Exactly. Yeah. And but then, you're right. It's not talked about that much. Right. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, like, founding year of musicals, because Hamilton is so enormous. Yeah. People tend to forget that— that 1776 did serious business back in the day. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah. for years, I for Halloween and, and Purim, which is sort of the Jewish Halloween in terms of dressing up. I'm familiar with Purim. Yeah, yes. so I would dress up for yeah. jo- as John Adams every year when I was That's a kid. So I was, I was always into American history. Right. Yeah, I, was, that, I was more into the history than, than you know, I would say contemporaneous politics. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I have the syndicated column when I'm 17. There are some upsides and downsides to that. You know, the now, upside— how did you approach that as a 17-year-old, like— and this is something that you're writing, so you're not speaking yet. You're just, right. You're writing at this point. So where did you find your voice for what you wanted to write? So this is what I was going to say. You know, part of the mm-hmm. problem with, with starting to write when you're 17 mm-hmm. is that you're searching for Absolutely. your voice. And there so, are usually no writing prodigies because you have no experience by which to draw from. Exactly. So <laughs> yes. Exactly. So— like, I was capable of writing really well. I was a very good writer. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know what angle I wanted to take. And when you're 17, you're sort of attracted to, okay, what can make a splash? What can get me attention? Mm-hmm. And so when I got into it, it, there was a lot of columns that were like, okay, what if I wrote like Ann Coulter? Because Ann Coulter was really mm-hmm. the hot thing at the time. Right? Mm-hmm. She was huge and had number one New York Times bestsellers. Right. And then I really hadn't developed— That's the, the conservative provocateur. Right, exactly. Yes. And then, you know, as I kind of aged out of that, and I, and I think I developed as a writer and as a thinker, then it was like, okay, well— I don't really want to do that. That's mm-hmm. not really my, my business, and it's not really what I'm good at. Mm-hmm. And so I started kind of becoming more of my own voice, which I think mm-hmm. I, I try to be more considerate. And one of the things that there's not a lot of room for in politics, but I, I you know hope that there will be more, mm-hmm. is the process of sort of developing a thought over time. Mm-hmm. And right. it's one of the downsides of doing this Formulating stuff. Formulating like, something with, with a lot of trial and error and thinking it through. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like people ask me a lot, you know, have you switched opinions on things? And yeah, I mean, I switched opinions yeah. on legalization of pot, for example. Sure. I switched opinions on same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, although that was for kind of different reasons than everybody sure. else has. But yeah, I mean— as evidence comes in, if you don't switch your opinion based on the evidence, then you're not really following the evidence. I completely – I always say half the time I disagree with myself. Yeah. Know? And so that, yeah. that's why it's always kind of a, a bit of a sore subject for me when mm-hmm. somebody will bring up a column I wrote when I'm 19 and they're like, OK, well, you wrote this when you're 19. It's like, right, I was 19. I said a lot of dumb stuff when I was 19. Mm-hmm. And so I've you know, created entire columns of lists of things I regret having said. So the good news is that you're thinking that you're forced to think about mm-hmm. this stuff when you're young, which means you're developing earlier in terms of your thought process. Right. The bad side is you're doing that all publicly. Yes. So a lot of the dumb stuff that you say is forever. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's, I, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I'm, I, I deserve sure. whatever criticism I get for crap that I wrote when I was 17. Right. As, as long as Thank people God, like, things I said when I was 17, there was no structure <laughs> for, for, uh, for containing that. Uh, but let me ask you this. How did you know, um, or I don't know how did you know is the right answer, but, um, when you talked about Ann Coulter, who was certainly on the right, did you know at that time that you were a conservative? Did you yeah, did you that, put that a label on it? So I knew I was conservative. Okay, I mean, my, my parents were, were Reagan voters. Okay. Um, so, so you grew up in a conservative household, yes. right? Uh, now, was that conservatism, at least looking back on it now, or were you aware at the time, do you think it came out—were you in a very religious household? Yeah, I mean, did, we, we became Orthodox when I was 11. Okay, so you, be, so, so you experienced not being Orthodox right. and became Orthodox. Right. Okay, so— 
by the uh, so someone had a conversion in your household. I'm assuming. Well, I mean, you, you don't really convert inside Judaism because they were Jews before. Well, I mean, conver- seeing the light. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Becoming right. more orthodox. Yeah, both right. my parents. When right. I we, was, we've got to change something up. I, exactly. That's like, what the conversation. They, was. They, they sort of made a decision that you have to choose how to raise your kids and okay. how involved you want to be, and so they did it as a strategy to have a more religious household because they had this, and they were interested in it from the time that they got were it. a lot younger, and got so the, I think that you know we became fully orthodox when I was 11, but we were going to synagogue from the time I was right. a kid. So so do you think, uh, was it a conservative household that came through religion, or do you think it just was conservative and religion just kind of added to that? I think my, my parents both have sort of conservative sensibilities in the sense that they are big believers in the idea. It, it's not particularly conservative, I, I think, but it right. has become so. The, the you know, work hard, and if you work hard and keep your Mm-hmm. Head straight on, then then you'll get ahead. Like in other um, words, your parents aren't really ideologues, but it, it expressed itself by voting for Reagan and that type of thing. Yeah, right? I think that's Is right. That I mean, yeah, I mean, okay. my, I believe my mom voted for Clinton in '92. Sure. Um, my dad didn't, um, but you know, there. I, I would say that you know, being the the Orthodox religious community mm-hmm. votes. 80-20 Republican, 75-25 Republican. So okay. the Jewish community, it's always very weird because whenever it's you see stories— It's excited a bit, right? Yeah. Right. So it's, right. you see it's precisely the reverse of the general Jewish community, which right. tends to vote 70-30 Democrat. Yes. But the Orthodox community, just like every other major, you know, very religious group in America, tends to vote Republican for social issues, among other reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also because they're uh, in the uh, in the Jewish community anyway, Israel's obviously a very big issue. And is, there's been a divergence in sort of terms of support of Israel over over time between. Is the there a schism between Orthodox Jewry and support for religion and, and I guess, would you say Reform Jewry? Yes, or, absolutely, okay. uh-huh. absolutely. I mean, they, they have very that different the views. Is the biggest issue in terms of being conservative or liberal? Do you think, um, or is it so, something else? Is it more uh, social issues? Um, well, I think that it's. I mean, partially it's social issues, partially mm-hmm. it's religious freedom issues. Um, you know, leave us alone so that we can do what we want, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean. There are a lot of reasons why the Orthodox community it's, – it's a biblically-based community. Can, communities that consider themselves biblically-based mm-hmm. t- and take the Bible very, very seriously, like seriously enough that they take a full day off and mm-hmm. don't use electricity and, and all yeah. that. They, they, t- they take the Bible very seriously, and that means that the provisions of the Bible with regard to social issues mm-hmm. are taken – you know, with yeah, a great I'm very fascinated with some of these types of things. I mean, this is a little bit. And off I'm libertarian topic. on these issues when it comes to government, but this is how people. Vote. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but um, it's so interesting to me. I don't know. If fundamentalist Christians are much of adherent to the rules part. You know, like the way that mm-hmm. let's say Orthodox Jews are, because a lot of I'm, I know <laughs> I'm not an expert on the Torah, <laughs> but I know that a, a lot of Judaism is guided by rules of living. Right. Right. Is that fair? Yeah, Judaism more, more so than philosophy of God's existence in that. Type that's of right. right. I mean, the, okay. the, the, the distinction that that typically folks tend to make is sort mm-hmm. of acts-based versus faith-based. Yes. Judaism is very acts-based. Right. Right. It's like you get up in the morning, you wash your hands in a particular yes. way, you pray <laughs> three times a day. Yes. Um, you know, it's in, in some ways, Islam is closer to Judaism that way. Correct. Than, than certain, five times, that type of thing. Exactly. There, there are rituals associated. There's ritual cleansing and orthodox. Right. There, there's a, like a lot of areas of life are, right. guarded, are guided by the mitzvot, by the commandments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's— I'm a Catholic, so there's a lot of rituals yeah, no, ca- no, in ca- the Catholic It's closer to Catholicism are, than Protestantism yeah. in, in, in some I, of those ways. Yeah. So, it's, so, yeah, I mean, that, that sort of is the milieu in which I grew up. Mm-hmm. And then— in, in terms of my own kind of personal conservatism, I've, I'm, I have a very libertarian brand of, okay. of conservatism. Mm-hmm. So I believe in a very strong social fabric. I think that people mm-hmm. do need social institutions that they feel part of and that provide them a support network mm-hmm. it, historically in the United States and elsewhere. 
that's been provided by churches and synagogues and sure. religious communities. And so I think it's important for those things to thrive. Yeah, I think you the talk founding, about this in your book. Right. I, I think mm-hmm. the founding bargain was basically that the government would stay out of all of this specifically so that social fabric could be built. And so I'm mm-hmm. very – uh, I'm very focused when it comes to you know divisions between religion and government. Mm-hmm. I never argue anything on a religious basis because there is okay. no actual commonality of conversation. If I cite the Bible at somebody mm-hmm. and they don't believe in the Bible, what have I accomplished right. exactly? I have to make a, a good secular argument for why something should be so in order for that to be convincing. And so sure. I don't make religious arguments on the basis of this stuff. And if there is no argument that mm-hmm. can be made on a secular basis for a particular policy, even if I may agree with the social policy, then it, it ought not be in the purview of government. Yeah, I think abortion is certainly one of those issues where it's it's tough to have a – well, I, I personally don't think people are going to change their mind about abortion, you know, which is one of those things. But there's religious arguments which sometimes have nothing to do with the law. Right. <laughs> you so know, the, the, it's one of those things, you know, so— One of the things that, that bothers yeah. me about the abortion argument mm-hmm. is that I think that there are a lot of folks— well, there, there's some folks on the right who certainly cite the Bible when they mm-hmm. talk about abortion. But I think there's a tendency on the part of a lot of folks on the left to act as though the pro-life movement is rooted in biblical feeling mm-hmm. as opposed to in a belief about the the— inherent value of of human life and when life begins. So yeah. I've never made an argument on the basis of citing Psalms. I've always made an sure. argument on the basis of there is no hard point that you can draw between this is a life that is valuable and this is a life that is not valuable. Right. And so for the sake of preserving all life, life begins at conception, but biologically speaking, that is when life begins or an independent human life begins. Mm-hmm. And so that's the pro-life message from where I sit. It's always been a, a science-based secular argument, not an argument steeped in you know, quoting Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Or right. Something. Well, I would say that without getting into abortion, because we can certainly talk about that. But um, to me, when I look at the conservative movement, and I want to ask what your like definition of conservative even is, mm-hmm. you know, but, asking, but to me, what I think got in the way of maybe I'll call philosophical conservatism or conservatism more as a governing idea is the moral majority, you know, and the moral majority's role in the Republican Party and the the conflation of of the way church and religion was used in terms inside of a party, mm-hmm. you know, and all that conflation, I think that happened. And I think a lot of that happened because religion as, as part of society, like even in the zeitgeist started waning in terms of its um, use in the zeitgeist, I think. And so like politicians never had to prove they were a God person, right? <laughs> you know, like that became a new thing, you know, as a proving thing. And I think the Republicans doubled down on that with the moral majority. Well, I think, And they, that's why God is at the center of a lot of those arguments because people use that um, in, in their argument. I'm not saying yeah, that you have. No. So I, I, right. I do think, again, there's a bit of an exaggeration that occurs mm-hmm. with regard to the characterization of the pro-life movement as being yeah, inherently and I'm talking religious. About, I'm talking about uh, conservatism. Right. But itself, if you're talking yes. about the, the sort of association of religious life with conservatism, mm-hmm. American politics tends to be reactionary. The moral yeah. majority arose as a direct response to the liberalization of American culture in the mm-hmm. 1960s and 70s, particularly around sexual issues, mm-hmm. around the idea that there were distinctions that were natural right. and good between men and women, around the idea that— Or that sex was more expressed freely in society. Right. right. And, or that, uh-huh. it, I mean, the old version mm-hmm. was sex was something that was for married people. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that was the religious vision. And then right. it turned into— not only is that not the religious vision, that's a restrictive John Lithgow version of life from Footloose where he's trying mm-hmm. to make sure that the kids don't dance and there's something inherently mm-hmm. bad. There, there was a, a feeling on the right reacting to the hard left, the, the sort of Betty Friedan 
marriage is a, is a Holocaust institution seeking to keep down women sure. is why you see the right reacting more to third wave feminism than, say, first wave feminism. Mm-hmm. Because third wave feminism is, is much more extreme. First wave feminism, the but, idea that women should vote, women should work. All for it. My wife's a doctor. My right. mom worked. My dad's But keep in home. mind, but at like, the time, all the, all the people on the right did oppose those things, you know, so— Well, not, not voting and, and not women working. I mean, that's—I think that's— But, but a lot of people, like the first-wave feminism, was opposed by by those arguments that were on the right, you know. Like, feminism was ridiculed not, when it first came out. Well, no, yeah. that, that, that's—I think we're talking second-wave feminism. So first-wave feminism, women mm-hmm. in the workplace, that was basically— I mean, if you look at the statistics— I'm talking about the feminist movement in the 70s. Right. So so this is why I'm distinguishing between the various Mm -hmm. waves of feminism. So first wave feminism is the 30s and the 40s. Second wave feminism starts in the 50s. The 60s and the 70s are third wave feminism. I would argue it's even before that if you want to talk about— I mean, the suffragette movement, you could call first wave feminism. I mean, that was a movement led by women, as was the temperance movement. Yes. You know, which a lot of people don't realize. Prohibition was a movement started really in the early 19th century. By religious women, by the way. Absolutely. And many, many movements, including abolition, have religion attached to it. For you sure. Know? And but um, I'm just I'm just shouting out to women who have been at the center of movements. But, no, 100 percent. But women really led that temperance movement that led to prohibition. But let's and women were also on the front lines. The first um, that first wave of feminism happened in the early part of the 20th century in the textile industry, especially. Right. And the labor movement, a lot of that uh, was represented by women and women. uh Man, women paid some heavy prices in those days. A hundred percent. But so, I think that the the notion that it was that it was you know irreligious people solely who were pushing that is not really no. I, I think really we supported. we tend to black and white things. Too I, much. This is sort of I my point. B- both you and I don't don't look at things. I think things are a little fuzzier than that. Yeah, I, it's hard I agree. to time machine it in today's divided world and to think that things were such divided. Like I even said on, on your show, I appeared on Ben's show, it's on the show, <laughs> that um, both parties, even both political parties, were were messier than in terms of including different points of view. You know, it's just in different times. Like there was a time the Republican Party was more progressive and the Democrats kind of took that from them right. and used a lot of those policies that Republicans used uh, in the New Deal, you know, and they became the more— uh, Yeah, Woodrow Wilson followed— TR. I mean, yeah. Woodrow basically just doubled down on, on TR. Woodrow right. was, by the way, the worst president in American history. Well, but, and yeah. Al Smith, <laughs> Al Smith, who was in New York, you know, mm-hmm. who was part of Tammany Hall, saw these progressive things are a way to get more votes. Right. You know, and he led the, he was at the center of one of those first uh, uh, labor change movements and all that right, stuff. Right, exactly. You know, no, there was a lot more crossover between the two parties. Definitely. You for know. sure. But in, as far as the original question, which was sort of the moral mm-hmm. majority at the heart of the Republican yes. Party. So I think what happened is that there it was— to stick some religion back in there. Well, no, it's not, it's not even that. I just think that—so um, I am not typically a fan of two things in religion. One is okay. using religion as a club to, to beat other people. And two is ignoring the fact that religion does have inherently political sides to it. I mean, mm-hmm. the Bible is not an apolitical document. So if you take the Bible seriously, that's going to when have, you say that, what do you mean uh, not an apolitical document? Do you, The Bible has perspectives when, on when, a lot of issues. But when you say political, are you saying political in a current sense? Or are you saying political back when it was written? I mean, in every sense. I mean, that there, mm-hmm. are, there when, when the Bible talks about certain prohibited practices, mm-hmm. the, the biblical, the sort of the traditional view of that is that the Bible means what it says. Mm-hmm. When the when the Bible talks about um, you know respecting your father and mother, mm-hmm. right? That that has some ramifications for politics. I mean, if it didn't have continuing relevance, people wouldn't cite the Bible. I don't think that religion is made for only the private sphere. Mm-hmm. In other words, it has an impact on how people think. Now, I think the way we have to discuss with each other is in terms of not citing the Bible. Mm-hmm. But 
to say that folks were members of, for example, the moral I'm majority. Tr- I'm trying to think of how your father and mother is a political statement. Okay, so the, so the way that it would be a political statement, for example, was the – so in the 1960s, there was a real feeling mm-hmm. that the older generation had screwed Americans mm-hmm. and that those people – and that their values needed to be overthrown. Right, that and, that would be the the extreme left position in terms of making that statement about overthrow, and the moral majority was but, reacting to that. In other words, the, the what what tends to happen. But but let's talk about the the specific thing that was uh, being talked about was the war in Vietnam and was the civil rights movement. But the well, extra- the sexual revolution was was also sexual happening, revolution. Right? But the but the expression of that you could extrapolate it to that. But that's not what was being fought on the ground. There were very specific issues that were being fought. Right, and ground. I think some of those right. issues you know, were correct and some of those issues were, were wrong. Right. I think that there are, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been some good things that came out of the sexual mm-hmm. revolution. There's been a lot of bad things that came out of the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the war uh, against the Vietnam War, I think is even that is more shaded than people like to make it out to be. Right. Um, the civil rights movement obviously is an ultimate good. So <laughs> that's... But it wasn't at the time. No, it wasn't you know, at the th- time. This is what I mean about time machining things too. At the time it was opposed by... You know, I mean, when you look at the tapes of or the the film footage of how people opposed it back in the day, and and uh, the whole wait, it's too soon, and oh yeah, you know, we don't want to hurt people's feelings who are the ones that are in power. You yeah, know? yeah, and all those kind of language, you know, it's fascinating to look at now because you know today it's easy for us to say, well, of course that was the right thing, but that that wasn't the feeling at the time, and that is, I believe that's the feeling for most movements. I think because humans ultimately don't like change. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I think that's right, and, and right. human nature tends to kick in in, in yes. some of the worst possible ways, right. which is especially why— especially if they're in power. Especially if they're in power, right. but even if they're not in power, because people will use excuses to yeah. do virtually whatever they want, which is why you know, the, getting back to the respecting your parents thing. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the the thing about your parents is that they've been presumably through a lot of the same things. So mm-hmm. you either learn from them or you learn not to do what they did. But, but if you have bad parents. Right. So the, but that, but that, and that, that but right. I mean, not to take it too broad, but that's mm-hmm. sort of one of the fundamental questions of American history right now is mm-hmm. did America have good parents or bad parents? So I think one of the big political divides right now is the perspective on American history. So I think that there's one side, um, and I think this is broadly describes the right sure. that suge- that says American history is a story of great victories being fought, not always being achieved. Mm-hmm. That basically the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, embody eternal, immutable, and good principles that were not always fulfilled, and that the fight of American history has been to extend those principles over a broader group of people. But the story of America is effectively a very good story. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a story about a good people trying to become better over time. Mm-hmm. And then there is a countervailing point of view. And this isn't the entire left. It's part of the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a subsection of the left that says American history is the story of racist, sexist, bigoted hierarchies imposing mm-hmm. their views on others mm-hmm. and using these supposed principles of the Declaration and the Constitution in order to sub- make other people subservient. And so the entire system is inherently corrupt and sort of needs to be blown up, and we mm-hmm. need to substitute a new version for that. Mm-hmm. And and that, you know, that goes to sort of how we view history generally. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't mean to press on the on the moral majority thing, except that I think that it's important to recognize how reactionary our politics are. Mm-hmm. So, so in, in that the, I do uh, agree with. So in, in the 60s— Politics are ultimately reactionary. And, and that's why mm-hmm. I think you can pick almost any time in American history, yeah. and if you're living in it, it feels very polarized. Mm-hmm. And then you look back, you know, that wasn't that polarized. But right. in the, the, the moral— that has to do with nostalgia itself. Well, that too. Right. Um, but I, I think mm-hmm. that the moral majority was a reaction to the Equal Rights Amendment, where people thought they were going to obliterate 
male and female bathrooms, which of course is now an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, there was a fear that that the law was going to demand. God forbid we put in the Constitution that women are equal to men. Well, no, it's that's it's, going it, to blow up everything. Well, it was it was it was <laughs> the consequences of putting that mm-hmm. in. Meaning, how do you then determine if there's not fifty yeah. percent of firefighters yeah. who are ma- male and fifty percent who are female? No, no, no. A lot of these arguments that were made by even Phyllis Schlafly at the time were ridiculous because the. The Equal Rights Amendment was so simple. The language was very simple in it. But the problem is that once you encode that, it's the ramifications of the encoding of language. It's the fact that there would be a problem with saying that women and men are are, should be treated equally under the Constitution is ridiculous. Well, I'll give I'll give you a perfect example of of how the aspirational idea, Mm -hmm. uh, an idea with which I agree, Mm -hmm. that does not necessarily play out legally the way that things. You, you might want them to play out legally. So let's take, for example, the, 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 wa- the so-called wage gap. So how do you determine how much of the wage gap is due to sexism and how much of it is due to natural mm-hmm. inclinations and differences between men and women? Right? Women take different jobs than men. They take less dangerous jobs than men. Mm-hmm. They work fewer hours than men on average. They want to take more time off from the workforce on average to take care of kids. Mm-hmm. They, they, they move in and out of the workforce at a different rate. When my wife had a baby, she was in medical school. She took off a year. I took off a week. Right? I mean, that's, that was something she wanted to do. In fact, the gender gap is bigger in countries that are supposedly more progressive, mm-hmm. like Norway and Sweden, because women have more choices. So if you have in the Constitution that men and women are to be treated exactly the same under the law, how do you—now somebody sues, and they say, okay, I'm being paid less than a man. Mm-hmm. Is the presumption that they're being treated with sexism, or is the presumption that there are differences between men and women? That's I, not clear I, I would from— say, I would say that's why we have courts to decide these things, right? And also— a lot of people don't realize, how do you get to that point? Like, how do you get to the point of needing an, an equal rights amendment? Like, a lot of people forget those types of things. Like, how do you get to the point of needing a civil rights legislation? Well, but here's the, the point. We didn't need a civil rights – I mean, not necessarily. We didn't need a, a, an equal rights amendment. Women are the majority of college students. Women in major cities fresh out of college are earning more than men, according to a Time magazine study from 2010. Uh-huh. So it didn't happen. Women are not subservient in our society. Women are, are, have a better track economically than men do if they don't drop out of the workforce and have babies. So the amendment never happened. Women aren't, women aren't under the heel. So I, th- this is one of those areas where the attempt to codify things in government may not actually be necessary, even if, again, and because I agree of the, that women should be paid the same for the also, same work. Because of the resilience of women, it doesn't mean that there should be a constitutional language that expressed this when there was explicit language uh, supporting men, and especially white men, as we know, in those days where it didn't have women, and the wanting to be included in that. Well, I mean, you know, all men are created equal did not, w- was never intended to mean just men. I mean, the, of course it did. So this is, this is a fundamental you know, question as to yeah. whether you think that that principle was meant to include all people well, or whether men, that was meant to include a particular subset. Well, of course it did. Uh, at the time— um, when that kind of language was used, <laughs> this is my <laughs> not necessarily disagree with you personally, but yeah. m- men was thought to be uh, white men, you know, men who could even make this type of language happen. You know, anybody else didn't quite qualify under this this category of what was called men. There's another use of men that, of course, means mankind and humans and that type of thing. But I think the language in the Constitution is specifically talks about people who are meant to participate in this fully. Okay, and then— Is the, that fair? So I, I think that is fair in the sense that there was right. a constitutional amendment to allow them to vote, for example. Right, sure. but, it, mm-hmm. but in terms of all men are created equal, people knew at that time that did not include all men. That included the white men 
and that society that who were who it was known that so, they they were allowed to participate. So in half I mean, agree, if we're being right, fair so, about so, those times, yeah. So half agree, yes. half disagree. So I so I agree that the political application of that phrase "all men are created equal" yes applied only to a subset of Correct. human beings. Right. Yes, that is true. Yes, the philosophical part of it. So the philosophical, yes. but it's the philosophical philosophical part that was eventually extended and used by. I mean, this is why. Frederick Douglass gives this very famous mm-hmm. speech, right, where he specifically talks about why the Constitution is his document, too. That's right. And he's never been given a fair share of it. That's right? correct. And, that, and that's, right. a, that's a convincing, good, useful argument, right? And that's, that's the kind of argument that brings people around. Yes. Uh, so that, so, it's like you use these words. Now these words are going to come back down. Well, and that's, that's the difference between <laughs> – I mean, that, that's really why they build monuments to MLK, right? I mean, because MLK mm-hmm. was doing the same thing. He was saying, you made this promise, and then you lied, right? The promise was never fulfilled. The promissory note, yes. Right, exactly. And, and now we're here, to, we're here to collect, right? And, the, yes. and that was correct. And that mm-hmm. is an appeal that, that I think yes. people Now, where Yes, now, where America does get credit, you're right, using, because that language was used, that language was also used to, to, uh, to progress uh, movements and that sort of thing. And on a broad right. philosophical level, the, I think that, you know, everybody likes to talk about Jefferson because he's obviously the most racist of the, of the founders who— were involved in writing these documents. I mean, I don't make slaves. a distinction between who's the most racist. Well, I mean, but but there is a, but there is an actual distinction between like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, I right? Know. I mean, Thomas I Jefferson, John Adams was militantly anti-slavery, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? There were founders who were militantly anti-slavery, which is sure. why the Constitution phased out the the importation of slaves well, past well, Jefferson 1807. Jefferson was a southerner, right? Right. And he and Jefferson is a really conflicted character because mm-hmm. early in his career he's talking about the evils of slavery, and sure. then he sort of gets acclimated to being real rich and owning other folks, and he's mm-hmm. yeah. and and he. Uh, and he sort of learns to live with the dichotomy, obviously, right, as most people did back then, right? Or at least, right. or at least, most people in the South. I mean, this yeah. was a this was a serious issue even in the, de- the time of the Declaration. I mean, mm-hmm. there was an original provision condemning the British Empire for bringing slaves to the yeah. United States that was ripped out by the South because the South didn't want that stuff in there. No, there was a it, lot of hypocrisy for a long time about slavery and what to do with it because getting rid of slavery presents a lot of problems of treating blacks as equal human beings, right? You know, that that is the biggest threat, you know, to the end of slavery, especially at that time. Well, especially because they had, I mean, what does that mean for, for folks who have, I mean, you, you've kidnapped an entire people and brought them to your shores. Yeah. They now constitute the majority of your population, which they did. I mean, by the time that, they, yeah. by the time slavery ended in a lot of these states, slaves represented a, either the bulk minority or an actual majority of people in these places. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty easy yeah. to, to then devalue folks to, in order to maintain well, a certain it, level of power, for but sure. But also, a lot of that is kind of misunderstood, I think, Ben, in terms of history. Like, a lot of people associate racism directly with slavery, you know, or the subsetting, let's say, of of blacks or people that aren't necessarily white in a certain way um, tied to slavery. And that's not true. No, you of know? course it was disconnected. So There's racism in the North, too. It's the same thing with anti-Semitism. You know, it didn't require these other events for it to exist. Right. Especially in Europe, you know. No, although that's it was— something that's been around for a long time, you it, know. It's true, although it was yes. formalized in a different way in slavery than, yes. than it had been previously, obviously. Absolutely. So. And that just— uh, yeah, slavery did a lot to really fuel those uh, fires and to to make people even more— you know, it kind of more physically pointed out the um, um, you're this and we're this right, type right. of thing. Where when you're living with people, that gets a little fuzzier. You can still have those opinions, but the more you live with people, you understand that we're basically not that much different. You know, there are cultural differences because people have different cultures and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, although I think that in order for that to really take hold, you do need to have a common vision of a good. 
because what, what the studies tend to show is that racial diversity doesn't necessarily lead to people actually liking each other more unless they are also oriented towards something in common. So mm-hmm. if you go into the army, for example, people are oriented in common. And so mm-hmm. people tend to, I mean, if you've, I mean, you've dealt with people in the military, I've dealt with people mm-hmm. in the military. Sports so, is one of those types of things. Sports is one of those things. Church sure. is obviously mm-hmm. one of those things. Church is a, is a good thing for that. Yeah. People and, with uh, similar things. Right. Yeah. This is what uh, the, the author of Bowling Alone uh, I'm trying to – his name slips my mind. Robert Putnam uh, mm-hmm. over at Harvard talks about. He, he has this, this funny line. He's on the political left, and he, he has this mm-hmm. funny line where he says he, he was writing a book basically about how diversity is our strength. Mm-hmm. And he did the research, and what he actually found was that he said only two things go up with inevitably with the emergence of diversity in a census tract. Mm-hmm. Uh, only two things, TV watching and protest marches. Right. Unless – I mean it's such <laughs> a dismissal of – once again, I go back to the whole reason for diversity – and one of the the biggest pushes for diversity, a lot of things start black and white, by the way, mm-hmm. and then it get it, it's extrapolated out to other things and takes on a different meaning. Right. But the whole reason for diversity is because blacks are shut out of society. A hundred percent. In other words, we weren't allowed to participate. This was written into law. And so when I'm a black person and I talk and I'm speaking about diversity, there's a reason for that. You because know, you want when, to exist and, in the common space. Correct. Yes, of course. And when people shut that down and say diversity is not important, says motherfucker, this is the right? No, no, that's it. Motherfucker, you don't know why we're even talking about this thing. No, so di- to shut it down as an idea through studies, it's like, what are you talking about studies? That's when I say, like, you're a researcher, I'm a witness. You no, know? But, but his, but his, but his <laughs> like, I, I, I think, experienced these things of being shut out. What, diversity has a different meaning to me. And what he was, what he, but his conclusion than that is an academic meaning of these are different types put together and they don't have things in common and that sort of so thing. So I, I agree, but the, the, yeah. the conclusion that he comes to is that. If you don't share anything in common, diversity is a bad thing. If you do share something in common, diversity is a wonderful thing because then we have different experiences. We learn from each other. Right. We treat each other better because we know each other. That is and, a cold study of it. But what I'm saying, one of the root causes of needing diversity <laughs> is in that mix. You know, like – and a lot of it – you talk about tribalism a little bit in your book yeah. too. A part of what tribalism is, if you look at it coldly, is that – there is something we're doing together that is better than what they're doing. Right. Know? And we need to keep this thing good, you know, for whatever reason. And don't let them take our shit or change our shit or that type of thing. You know, and the and this is why I have a problem with just even the phrase identity politics now. Um, because for the long, longest time, identity poli- politics was white Americans. That's true. You know, but nobody calls that identity politics, you know. And um, now I know that they call it that because people have to call it, you know. Have well, that's to, the parlance now. Yeah, you yep. have to make a term for them. So. The, the point that I'm making, though, mm-hmm. is that this is why if we want to come to, you know, the kind of diversity that's good for the country, and what I mean by that mm-hmm. is a diversity where we're not tearing away at each other and identifying as tribal groups, either on the basis of race or anything else, we need to have some ideas in common, things that we share. And sure. I think that those ideas— goals, yes. Goals would be good, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there needs to be something there. And that's why, you know, I think that mm-hmm. the the kind of— politicization of all of our common spaces is very yeah. dangerous. I think that the the attempt to turn everything into a political issue yes, is incredibly dangerous. I think that we do actually still have to have certain fundamental values in common, like you know, the idea that I can make a reasonable argument to you mm-hmm. without appealing to my tribe. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is one thing that you know I'm involved with the so called intellectual dark web. Or or that I need to be threatened by your tribe if you did. Right, exactly. Like, you know, if, like if, that's the flip side. Right. If we, if we, right. Mm-hmm. If we disagree, I, there shouldn't be threats emanating right. from one tribe. Like, because, if I'm speaking from my point of view as a Black American, why does someone need to be threatened by that or think that it's less American because of my particular experience? Right. So those types of things is the other part of that. In, in order for there to be mm-hmm. diversity that is that is you know both wonderful and good for the people who are involved in the diversity, 
you do need the, the bigger tribe has to be the country, right? Or at least some idea of what the country mm-hmm. is, because sure. otherwise you are going to break down inevitably. People have social connections. They're going to break down into tribes almost no matter what. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of the United States, I think that is the best idea, uh, and this is what I think conservatism really is, is limited government that allows for you to associate with people you want to associate with, but we have these broader things we can come right. together on, and that creates this creedal tribe. Yeah. That, and that's why I say you know, the idea— of the Declaration of Independence, which is that it was not always fulfilled, that's still the that's mm-hmm. still the idea that we should be invoking. So when I talk in my book about you know we Let's used talk to talk about your book, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. and I don't mean to sell my book, but no, it's, that's but, okay. The but, right but, side but, of history. Um, but mm-hmm. when it, I talk in the book about mm-hmm. sort of the idea that we used to see each other as brothers and sisters, a lot of people came down and they're like, "What the? What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, look at American history. That's not true." And right. of course. They're right, right? I mean, the fact is that in the 60s, we weren't exactly seeing each other as brothers and sisters. The point I was trying to make is that the values that were constantly invoked were those values, mm-hmm. meaning that what, what MLK tries to invoke is that, mm-hmm. right? He's invoking, you may not think you're my brother, you are my brother. Mm-hmm. And so as my brother, you can't treat me like this, right? right? And, and it's those values. That, and, and now what I see is people not invoking those common values anymore now, and retreating back into, now, and this is right, left, Many different races. Sure. Well, I will make a slight detour again because, once mm-hmm. again, I have to go to the arguments that were being used against him, okay? Some were based on these same values. I mean, that that is true, but the success yes. of MLK is based on the success of MLK. Meaning he was like, assassinated, too. That, that's true. And, and, <laughs> right, right. And, now we, uh, and now, you know, we all take a federal holiday off right. his birthday. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I'm not going to pretend that this stuff wasn't controversial at the time. Right. What I'm saying is that the unifying message of America, and this has been true for every successful movement in the history of the country, mm-hmm. has been the argument that we're all brothers and you're not treating me like a brother. Mm-hmm. And now what I'm starting to see is we're not brothers, you're an asshole, and I'm going to treat you like you're an asshole. Mm-hmm. And that's dangerous stuff. And it's, and it's why you're getting, I think, an increasing oscillation in politics. I think the reactionary mm-hmm. nature of politics is getting worse. So, to take that example, you get the Equal Rights Amendment, the moral majority comes up. People on the left react to the moral majority by saying, you guys are a bunch of theocrats, so we need to basically crack down on the practice of religion in the public square, I'm to not, which religious people say, well, hold up a second. I don't think this that ha- – I just have to stop you. The, I think those are separate events. I think the support for the Equal Rights Amendment had nothing to do with the – Kind of the collapse of religion in the public square. No, no, no. I'm, I'm talking about the actual like group called the Moral Majority. The Moral right. Majority did arise. The Falwell Moral Majority sure. did arise as a direct response to the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, the that as a broader as a broader historical matter, obviously mm-hmm. that was building for a while, thanks to the sexual revolution of the '60s mm-hmm. and and a feeling that you're right, religion was being ejected from the public square. People were going to church less. It was becoming a less religious country. Mm-hmm. And so they were saying, okay, well, we're still here, guys, and we want to be involved. But also and, they wanted to put it into politics. But I think what they were saying is that it was, all, it was always in politics and you're ejecting us. No, it was always in – I'm saying it was always in culture, that it didn't have to be in politics is what I'm saying. Right, but like, like different that true? Si- I mean – Oh, completely. If you look, look back even at the popular culture, because I know you've talked about this in books and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. If you look at popular culture, it was okay to have stories that had people going to church. You know, right. one of my favorite movies is is The Bishop's Wife, you know, yeah. this Christmas movie. You know, yeah, great movie. It's a story about a bishop of a church and everything, and nobody – it's not that big a deal, you know, but it's harder to have – we don't share that in our popular culture as much anymore or as a a society in the way that it was a given back then, that, that God and church and country were things that people – they didn't have to put extra on it is what I'm saying. Right. No, so, because it was kind of a given in society is all I'm saying. You right. Know? Like 
Most people, it was a ritual of going to church on Sunday. If you're Jewish, going to temple on Saturday, whatever it was, you know, as this country ritual. But you're correct about that started falling apart, especially in the 60s, in terms of it being a, a let's say, a country institution, something that we all agreed upon right. as, an inst- right. as something. And the, the, you're, you're right that the culture was and, broadly in line with these sort of traditional Judeo-Christian yeah. values. And then I think— And, and his, I'm just using uh, the— um, the pop culture has an example, right, but no, it's not just but, pop but, culture. Of course, and I yes. think that what happened, but here's sort of my view of politics, is that the law is made as a result of people's cultural convictions mm-hmm. very often. And so as the culture changed, the law changed. And when the law changed, there were a bunch of people who suddenly awakened to the idea that they have to get involved in politics because when the law changes, the law is a political thing. So to take an example, people were becoming more socially liberal on a variety of issues in the mm-hmm. 1960s. Roe v. Wade hits. And suddenly, abortion is the law of the land across the country. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of Christians go, okay, this isn't just a question of less people are going to church now. This is a question of what's embedded in law. If we don't get involved in the sure. public square, sure. we're going to be forcibly ejected from the public square. Yeah, there are different things that, that motivate people to get involved in And that I think that if you talk to religious and, and folks— that, And that start movements. And, and, right, and I'll tell you right now, I mean, that, that is what is getting religious people so involved in politics now. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now— Because they feel the law is infringing upon their religious beliefs. Right. It, that, that's right. I mean, mm-hmm. to take a perfect example. So um, there's this woman up in Washington State. Right? Mm-hmm. She runs a bakery uh, and—or a flower shop, uh, Arlene's Flowers. Mm-hmm. And a gay couple comes in. And she's been catering to this gay guy for, for years. I mean, he's a friend. She, he's come in. She's sold him flowers for years. He says, I want you to specifically make these floral arrangements for my same-sex wedding. Mm-hmm. And she says, I'm a religious Christian. I'm sorry. I can't do that. Here's the name of three other florists. And he mm-hmm. says, okay. Then he proceeds to go with the ACLU to the board in the state of Washington and sue her mm-hmm. and basically put her out of business. Mm-hmm. So I understand folks on the left are saying, okay, well, look at all these religious bigots who won't serve this gay guy. Well, she was serving the gay guy, number one. But number mm-hmm. two— For the religious person, you're now saying that you get to dictate to them how Mm -hmm. they live their life in a business setting. For me, this is – so as a religious person, a lot of religious people see this as a specific assault on freedom of religion. Do you think that should be called Christian flowers instead of Arlene's flowers? I think she can call it whatever she wants. It's her business. Mm -hmm. I mean she is – Is it a Christian floral uh, place? I mean, is she is? is a Christian who runs a business. Right, but I'm saying, but is the business a Christian floral business? They, they don't specifically cater only to churches. It seems like that would make a difference. Then. I, I, see, I, I don't think so. My, my mm-hmm. view of this, and this is where my libertarianism really crosses lines, mm-hmm. I don't think that this is actually a religious freedom issue. I think this is a basic freedom of association issue. Meaning, okay. I think that if you don't want to have me, I'm a Jew. If you don't want to have Jews at your cafe, I don't really have a problem with that other than I, I think I you're have a, jerk. a problem with that. Right. Yeah, if you don't want to have Jews at your cafe, I have a huge problem with that. I mean, I have a problem uh, with it in I, the sense I, that I will boycott you. But I think America— But I'm not going to use the government to come after you. But I—okay, so we have a fundamental difference in this. For sure. Without the government, there is no civil rights for blacks. There is none. That without the government, there Correct. is no without the government. None. There is no legal. There Correct. is no legal segregation. What I mean by that which, is that Jim which Crow was le- Jim Crow was legally enforced Correct. by the government. Okay, it was Correct. not just private people who were engaged in segregation. And because why they were do racist. you think Jim Crow happened? Jim Crow happened because people who were racist voted for Jim Crow. They already had these opinions. Okay, well they can have right. the listen. You can have your opinion. It's, yes. There are lots of people I disagree with right. who, who are entitled to their opinions. But the gov- but the government um, can- without a government remedy for these for these things, where <laughs> blacks have no remedy in society. Government has to intervene See, in this. I don't I don't think that's correct, and I think that the history of the United States shows that's not correct. Meaning that as soon as 
as soon as— What is the, third, what is the 14th Amendment? Now, I'm not talking about the, the Civil War. I'm talking beyond, beyond the Civil War. So obviously, the government needs to step in to prevent loss of life, liberty, and property, right? So the, the fact is that when the government fights a war to but, end slavery— that, that's not quite what we're talking about. Now we're talking about Jim Crow, right? I mean, we're, no, let's we're take talking the period about, we're talking about. Well, we're so. talking about the government needing to intervene right. to, to protect certain rights or whatever. So I know. don't think you have a right to my services, period. Okay, so we're talking— it, it started So when you with, say president, no, but this is no, the No, 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 but right? here's what it started with. And when you say libertarian, I know that means certain things. But I have a problem— if you have a cafe and you say Jews cannot come in here, that's what you said. Right. I said, I have a problem with that, and I don't mind government intervening in that. Right, and I but have a you, problem with it, and I don't, don't want government. I, I, I have a problem with it. I don't yeah. want government intervening. What is the remedy? The, why the, why the, do we live in this country re- if, if government can't intervene in certain because, um, things like Because that? I can start a cafe across the street that puts that guy out of business. Yeah, but, but Ben, here's my point. That argument could have been used in, in civil rights and was used. Why do blacks have to sit at the lunch but, counter? But this is, they, they're, they're still being served. No, but th- this was not the argument that was used in the civil rights movement because it was legally enforced, meaning it was illegal for blacks and whites to sit together in Alabama. A restaurant could be closed down if blacks and whites sat together in Alabama. The government, the federal government, had not only the right, the obligation to step in and tell states that they were not allowed to legally enforce segregation. But I don't think that the federal government or any government really has the role in telling me what I can and cannot do in my business. Well, you just said that they did. No, I said that the government cannot tell me what to do. And they that just, whole, but they just did with with if they're ending segregation, they are telling you what to do. No, no, no. I'm talking about the government compelled segregation. Right, Jim but Crow if, was but compulsory. If, I understand, but if the government says there's desegregation, they are telling you you now have to do that. No, I'm telling you. No, they're saying right? that. No, no, no. When the federal government was set, this is the difference between the various titles of the Civil Rights Act. The, the specific injunction in all of the titles, except for, I believe, Title VII, uh, deals with the state governments, meaning the federal government says to the state government, you can no longer prohibit a restaurant from desegregating. They just told the restaurant what to do. No, that's not right. They, they, told, the government, they, they told the restaurant that the, the restaurant cannot do whatever it wants. Before, they were telling the restaurant— Wait, wait, wait. Are they telling the restaurant it could do whatever it wants? I mean, without provision seven, without Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. So, yes, if the restaurant right. says we don't want to serve blacks, could they do that? So, in my opinion, the answer is yes. But and you the, just said and, that they can't do that. No, no, no. What, <laughs> no, no. You, okay, so let's right. let's take this again. So, right. what, what I'm saying is that you have a situation in which the government of the state of Alabama mm-hmm. took an otherwise non-racist restaurant owner and said to them. You must segregate your restaurant. This well, is what Jim Crow non, said. Non-racist is a big leap. For, no, no. For someone I, that I'm, already, using, I'm using a hypothetical here. To, so right. there, there were there were. I have to say, I disagree with your premise here. Yeah. Okay, but they, but right. it, but it's not actually. I mean, the the Woolworth boycott is a good example of mm-hmm. non-governmental methods being used to desegregate Woolworths. Right? There was no federal uh-huh. legislation that desegregated Woolworths. Black civil rights activists went into Woolworths and mm-hmm. they occupied the counters. And the media coverage was so bad when Woolworths tried to mm-hmm. eject them that Woolworths desegregated across the country. Why did we have to keep doing that? I'm the, the why did you have to keep doing what? Why do we have to? So you're saying if blacks would only keep doing that for every business in America, that could have been a remedy I'm rather saying than that, the government uh, stepping in. Uh, I'm saying like that, 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 no, no, that no, could have no. been a remedy. There was a, there, was a government re, uh, there was a government stepping in that was necessary, but with regard so, to laws that were on the books. You got to get to Target. You got to you got to get to Sears now. You got to get to got to get to Macy's. I mean, come on, black people, you got to desegregate these things. So, a couple of things. Mm-hmm. One, mm-hmm. in today's world, my answer is basically yes. 
And the reason that my answer is basically really? yes is because I do not want the government stepping in and telling people what they can do and what they can't do. Okay, so let me ask you this. So it's a, I believe that— In the time, now the, the second part of my answer before I get— in, but, in the time— But isn't the pro-life it, maybe, position— Maybe there's a temporary necess- necessity for the government to step in. But isn't the pro-life I would have voted for the Civil Rights Act, in other words. Okay, but isn't the pro-life position asking the government to step in and protect a life? Yes. So if somebody threatens your why life— is the gov- Why can't we just go to doctors individually and say, hey, man, come on, don't do that? Because the government does have a role. If the restaurant were murdering people, the government has a Isn't role. This, what about the liberty of the woman? There's a difference between the provision of a service and the murder of a human. What about the liberty of the woman? That doesn't come into play if you're talking about the protection of somebody else, meaning that the entire premise of the pro-life movement is that the issue is not the woman. The issue is the child inside the Okay, woman. so we're talking about people who— Right. If you walk into a restaurant and somebody tries to kill you, the government should step in and stop it. If you walk into a restaurant and say, I need you to serve me today, and the restaurant says no, I don't think that the government has a role there. Uh So the government has a role in some things, but not in others. In in specifically very clearly defined circumstances, Uh meaning the protection of life, liberty, and property. Uh the, The government protects your rights. What I started this conversation with Uh is you do not have a right to my services, and I don't have a right to your services. Uh So when we're talking about restaurants, that's a service. When we're talking about Arlene's Flowers, that's a service. Yes. Now, so, but what I was getting to is the nature of your refusal of service. You know, so the nature of your refusal of service, I think, is very important. You brought up the fact that if they don't want to serve me because I'm a Jew, and I said, I have a problem with that. I don't have a problem if they don't want to serve you because you're not wearing shoes. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with that. You know, that's right. fine. We have the right to refuse service, blah, 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 blah. I get that. You're trying to run a business. You got certain rules. That discriminates in something that we wouldn't find, you know, unreasonable, let's right. say. Like, the reason why we have words like even unreasonable and those sorts of things is we know not everything fits every rule, right? Right. I believe denying service because you're a Jew is a problem, and I believe that the government should have a say in an issue like that. So I think we have a fundamental disagreement. On we, we do, because yeah. I because I believe that it is a problem, but I don't mm. believe that every problem has a government solution. Not every problem. And I'm talking about uh, this problem. I don't think this problem. If I don't want has, to serve you because you're a Jew, I think that's a problem. I, I think it's a problem. Yeah. I think that there is a government solution to it, but the government solution is so broad that it grants a power to the government that I do not think is appropriate. Yeah, and I think, that, I think stepping in on that— is necessary. And and so you know? I'll, I'll tell you why. But that's because, okay. But this is, no, yeah. no, no. So my view of government, and this is, it's it's a difference even between many conservatives and sort of libertarians sure. where I am, sure. uh, is, is that any power you grant to the government, you have to think what that power looks like when mm-hmm. somebody who you don't like holds that power. Slippery slope argument. It's not a slippery slope argument. It's mm-hmm. a the power can be used against anybody argument. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, for example, there are a bunch of people on the right right now who are interested in regulating the tech companies. Mm-hmm. They think that the tech companies should be treated as a public utility. Sure. I think that that's a mistake they're, they're because all- I, think that the, I think that people I don't like could use that power in a way that I, I don't like. I understand. There are always unintended consequences to almost anything. But I think the, the good of an action sometimes outweighs what might be the, the predicted future and of something so, because sometimes you have to deal with what's right in front of you in the moment. So I like, agree with that. Like, which as is, you say, I, there, agree. I could make – I don't have these arguments, but someone could make arguments about um, – like against pro-life with the government stepping in. I'm not saying I have those arguments, yeah. but someone could make the unintended consequences of protecting that right for whatever reasons, you know. And there are, you know, there there are many arguments, but I think if you're if you're doing a, a specific action for a specific good, that should be the primary concern and not what the you know, the future telling argument is. You know, there is but, some there I'm not saying there yeah. isn't merit to saying 
If you want to set up something with a sunset provision, I'm a lot more warm to it. Meaning that the, I'm not the, mad at the, sunset the, provisions for certain things, right? Because the, but there there are certain and there are certain things that are messier than one thing can do for it. Like, and I acknowledge this. I don't believe that legislation cures things. I believe it starts us on a journey of something many times. You know, like when I think about civil rights legislation mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, racism doesn't end because you have civil rights legislation, but at least. You know, slaps the hand. You can't do that. You know, right. So hopefully we can get to this place, you know, and that sort of thing, you know. So that's why I, I believe the government has a role in at least doing that. Right. And, and I that's why I differ from classic libertarians, because I think libertarians are so against the government doing almost anything. I'm not saying you're yeah. that. But when I listen, no, to I mean, I, am. I, I want the government. I, ver- I really don't everything. understand that because um, I, I know that there's this feeling and Reagan kind of presented this a lot, too. Um that most of the things that government does is bad, which, okay, whatever. I think government can do good things and it can do bad things. And, you know, by its nature, it tends to to do things poorly many, yeah. many times, which I understand, you know. But government is the people, too. The people do determine what a lot of these things are as well right, but know, the, the, in, uh, in our society. Right, and, but yeah. I do agree with the founders that, you know, because we're not a pure democracy and we shouldn't be a pure democracy, mm-hmm. uh, that the people are very often wrong about things. And segregation in the South would be a perfect example of that. These things but, were enshrined in law. Yes, the people the people as a mass, but the people are also in the republic, you know, that's made up of people as well. And, so. I, and I, right. I, so I like the people having individual rights specifically because I trust people mm-hmm. more as individuals than I do people as a collective. I have it both ways. I have to be honest with you. I think there are things that individually we can figure out, but I— uh, the, the reason why I disagree with you, and, and I'm not sure if, if that statement makes sense based on some of the things you're saying, communities are very important to the health of societies. I agree. And the things that we agree upon with communities are very important. I don't, think, gover- I don't think government's a community. Absolutely, though. communities get it wrong. I'm not saying government is community, but I, I said government is the people. So the people make up these communities, you know. And I'm talking about the United States. And what I think has been good about some of these things are— have been a lot of uh, community organizations, things that happen in the community. I think our communities are the strongest part of what can make this country great and what happens at the community level. I, I really yeah. believe that more than the federal well, and I, even the state I, level. Here's where we totally agree. Like local and, government to me is the most under-talked about important aspect of of healthy societies, I'm right. saying. I, t- I totally agree yeah. with this. And and yeah. that's why I think that the the loss of localism is a, a real yeah. disaster for the country. And, I do and think it, the left does go far in its federal cures for things. I, I do I do have a sense of that. Too. Right. And and this is why, you know, what I was going yeah. to say with regard to sort of the, the great migration from the south to the north is yeah. a good example of what happens when folks can finally leave areas that suck yeah. and move to areas that treat them better. Right? I mean, Detroit becomes a largely black city because— mm-hmm. Black Southerners yeah, are looking at this one. Why that? Yeah. Well, of course, but <laughs> yeah. but those issues were nothing comparable to the, the issues of, of the South, obviously. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and, I mean that's why LA became you know heavily black. I mean, there's the people were people were yeah people mm-hmm. people were moving out to places with more opportunity. Absolutely. So yeah. you know, I freedom tends to be a better solution than government cramdowns on yeah. a broad level. Now there may be temporary necessity for those cramdowns, which is why sure. I say I would vote sure. for the Civil Rights Act in the time. Do I think mm-hmm. that the general principle the government should cram down on people how they handle their business is something I'm comfortable with? No, and I don't think anybody should, frankly, be comfortable with that because mm-hmm. it's all fun and games until they decide that, you know— Sure. I, I think— You have to cater to— Anything like, the government does can get out of hand in certain ways, but I, I do think that it, there definitely are interventions that are necessary depending on what it is. I tend to look at it specifically, and I, I understand that— On a local level, by the way, I tend to agree with you more, mm-hmm. meaning that why? Sure. Because 
you live in an area where you probably know more of the people. Correct. Right? You know you, you, where you share more Even of things the, like zoning and those sorts of you things. You know more right? of those people. You, you deal mm-hmm. with those people. And that's more of a community sure. than once you get to the federal level. So local government having more power mm-hmm. than the federal government, I mean, that's, that is a, a classical right. conservative position, obviously. And um, that's something that the founders really did envision. Local government was responsible for virtually everything. The feds were responsible for very little. Ben, thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, a couple other questions because I know sure. religion is a big part of your life. And that sort of thing. We talked a little bit about it in politics. But let me ask you a more philosophical question. Um, What do you think is more important to human beings? Do you think the fact of a God or the experience of religion and its activities? On a day-to-day level, I would say religion and its activities, kind of the social value Mm -hmm. of of religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, On a a civilizational level, I think that— the belief that there is a creator such that we are created in his image and have innate value mm-hmm. uh, is, is of chief importance. Yeah, you talk about in your book the importance of, as a human being, needing to know that you have value that is intrinsic to something outside of yourself, given to you by a creator, that sort of thing. I'm, right. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, and that's know, right. That's but right. I think it's at the root of what your point of view is in terms of the, the, uh, the moral purpose part of your book. Is right. that fair? Yeah, no, that, that is mm-hmm. fair. And and the case that I make is that you can be an atheist and still hold a lot of those same mm-hmm. values, mm-hmm. but you can't really explain the values, mm-hmm. meaning that scientific materialism— Do you have to explain it if you're living it, though? Um, you don't have to. Okay. I mean, you, you can live with, with the, a certain level of, I'm just not going to go beyond this point. These are core mm-hmm. assumptions that I'm making. Sure. I think the, the problem that I have very often is when people say it's not a core assumption. It's a self-evident reality. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, it's, it's not really a self-evident reality. Mm-hmm. Like, you can make the same assumptions that my religion makes where I say that sure. you know God said that we ought to do X. And mm-hmm. you say, well, I agree we ought to do X. I just don't think God did it. All right. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. But it, w- Some what, people are like, I find God just real bossy sometimes. You know? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, God is bossy, right? I mean, in my religion, bossy, he's specifically sassy, bossy. He tends to smote a lot, especially in that Old Testament. Oh, yeah. And it was good times. A lot but of does smiting. God still smote, do you think? Does that still go on? Or is that uh, just more that, of an Old Testament okay, so, thing? Okay, so I, I think— Because this whole that, smoting thing I had a problem with. Okay, so, so I think that reality is basically God's rules for the universe. Uh-huh. And I think that reality tends to hit you hard, bro, uh, in the words of a famous YouTube video. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the, okay, so here is my narrative of the okay. past, past couple of decades in, in, in sort of American smoking? politics. Oh, yeah. So, oh, okay, wow. here, so here, you ready for the— There's modern-day smoke. Okay, so here's, here's my narrative. So I think that in 2016, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton spends her entire life oh, wanting God. to be— pre- you, you ready for to, this? You have to no, go wait, 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 no, wait for oh, this. Oh, my God. You're going to like it, I think, in the end. So I want it Hillary, to end on a good note. Okay, no, no, no you, you'll like it, All I think. Right. So Hillary Clinton spends her entire life desperate to be president, really, really wants to be president of the United States. I don't know if I agree States. with desperate, but I know that's how the right views Hillary Clinton. Yeah, for sure. That's how we I view it. I think she had the ambitions of a man but was criticized because she was a woman. That's fair. Yeah, uh, that's fair. But she right. has the ambitions of the most ambitious men. I mean, she was she's a very which very, I have no problem with. Listen, she right. can be as ambitious as she wants to right. be. That's fine. Right. But she 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 really she men, men who want to do it are also desperate to be president, right? I think that Joe mm. Biden is desperate to be president, <laughs> which is why he's running for the ninth <laughs> consecutive time. Uh, uh, so in any case, uh, and I think the Republican Mitt Romney was desperate to be president. He ran multiple times. Yeah. Uh, so the yeah. John McCain really wanted to be president. Sure. Okay, this is not a political thing. Uh-huh. So Hillary Clinton really really wants to be sure, president of in the course, United States. Yeah. And she spends her entire life building up a pretty sterling resume in terms of secretary of state. She's a senator. She does all of these things. She considers herself a lot of things that aren't in the public eye that she's done too. Sure. Uh And she she spends a lot of time doing this. And then because she's so overweeningly 
desperate for the position and she couldn't answer the simple question, why do you want to be president other than you want to be president, right? Mm-hmm. This really was, I think, what, what hurt her mm-hmm. is that if you, you can look at a candidate and if you can't answer the sort of Ted Qu- Kennedy question, why do you want this? Sure. Then you're in trouble. Uh, and she ends up being defeated by this charlatan boob who is, you know, kind of a ridiculous human being. At least we agree being. on that. Yeah, yeah and, and, he, <laughs> she's, and she's defeated by that. So yeah. that, is, that is a certain level of cosmic, uh, of, cos- of sin being punished on a cosmic level. Then what comes for Donald Trump, I don't know. I fear that it will not be great for, for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. meaning that he spends his entire life wanting to be loved, desperate to be loved, interested in attention, wants to be the center of attention. Mm-hmm. Where this goes from here, if pattern holds, may not be wonderful, for him. I think that people <laughs> people tend to get what they deserve in this life is my uh-huh. general viewpoint. Not always, sometimes, but I think— Bad guys sometimes win, though, you know, unfortunately. Um, um, unless you're a dictator of a small, yeah. you know, Southeast Asian country, mm-hmm. I think t- typically— I'm, I'm in showbiz, so I've seen bad guys win a lot. Well, that, that, that is true. <laughs> Although Cosmic Justice came for Harvey Weinstein, right? So, yeah. like, so I, I, yeah. I tend to believe that, that what goes around comes around to a certain extent. Yeah, I and will so say, there, there's where I see the hand of God Hillary in this In Hillary Clinton's mighty. defense, I don't think she was smote, you know, or smote. She certainly, she certainly, you know, has, let, has let treated you, it like let that. Let me tell you who did the smoten was uh, Benghazi, 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 Fox News every night for like five years. She, dude, she, she lost because she lost because nobody showed oh, up to God. vote for her. Republicans hated Hillary Clinton. I remember in the early 90s, they were ridiculing she her. Was pushing, which, she was pushing nationalized health care in like 1993. Yes. <laughs> that's why Republicans disliked her. Okay, no, they disliked early. her even before she did that. Um, well, they, they disliked her when she was doing the I'm not Tammy Wynette. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they came out against mm-hmm. her. You know? Yeah. All right, Ben. Uh, the book is The Right Side of History. The book is real fascinating. Um, there are parts. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Ben, as you can tell, he's a, a big uh, philosophy student. I mean, your allusions to philosophy are Makes my head explode in there. <laughs> I mean, it's, like it's a I'm, quick tour. Yeah. Yes, I'm familiar with maybe half of some of the names too, you know, but I get where you're coming from. But it is an interesting argument that you make, you know, remember where you came from, is this where we're going, and that sort of thing, and take from it what you will, you know, in terms of the agreement. But, but well done. Um, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Thanks, thanks for being Thanks for the a, conversation, dude. It's, it's a yeah, lot of yeah, fun. Yeah. It really I, is a blast. I, I believe, and Ben, we talked about this, we need to have more conversations. They don't have to be divisive. Ben and I could sit down here and we could have an attack conversation and go after each other, and that might make a lot of people happy, but... But uh, in this political season, I feel like let's have a little let's have a little something different. Well, I, so really, I appreciate uh, you you coming on and back at you. On. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, thanks a lot.